Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Really 007 podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Tom Pickup, and in this episode, we'll finally, finally, finally be discussing Diamonds Are Forever. Nah, could have done better. Could have done better. Anyway, if Did you... you want us to sing along, <laughs> if you, <laughs> I can't, yeah, Don't leave me hanging, dog. If you're, if you're a new listener, then, uh, <laughs> you, 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 we've, already, we've already turned you off, haven't we, I think. But uh, yeah, head over to... Really, double oh seven pod uh, mission accomplished. Yeah, we've got uh, we're online uh, at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we have loads of reviews, tributes, specials, and so forth. All can all those can be found on iTunes and Spotify. Again, just search really double oh seven and join in on the debate. Usually, fairly inane on Twitter. Tonight, I will be giving a special shout out to Double O Kevin, another code name, perhaps. I don't know his. Uh, his real name is uh, very uh, crisp comments on Twitter, so uh, I presume you called Kevin. Kevin! Just wanted to do that gag. <laughs> <laughs> Indulge me. Indulge me. You can't see this, no one, but there was a great Catherine O'Hara there was, impersonation there was. going on there. <laughs> Kevin! We have to mention, thank you to Feedspot, who named us in the top 35 James Bond podcasts in the world. And we've only been going since August 2020, so we're very proud of that, and hopefully we'll keep up moving up those rankings next time they're published. But tonight, I'm joined by regular contributors, John Kell and Chris Goldie, but we also have a very special friend of the show discussing this real one-off, shall I say, in the series. We do have License to Queer, first name License, second name to Queer. No, I'm only joking. Real name, <laughs> less well-known as Mr. David Lowbridge Ellis. We have tonight with us, we have got License to Queer and we've got License to Kell. So, how good is that? We must be right. Ah, yes, yeah. Well, maybe on my mother's side. Yeah. Good. See, there you go. <laughs> Instantly two bonding jokes. Anyway, welcome, David. That's it. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I know we've been talking about doing this for 
seemingly forever because I think we forever. kind of or we appeared roughly around the same time on social media and that sort of thing, didn't we? So yeah. we kind of formed a mutual appreciation society quite early on. I genuinely find your podcast absolutely hilarious, um, and I'm I'm just I'm just glad that I get to join in the fun. To be perfectly honest, so thank oh, you for having me. David. David was one of the first people to sort of give us a, sh- a shout out when we were very very young, especially the the octopusy impressions and all that. You mean you mean you mean octopusy 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 beautiful. Do you know how long I spent trying to type that using the normal alphabet? Phonetic. My, my background is in linguistics. I almost got the international phonetic alphabet out. In fact, I don't know why I haven't got around to doing that. <laughs> I will do that at some point. But yes, Louis Jordan. Louis Jordan's exact pronunciation, octopusy, octopusy. Yeah, cracked me up when I heard it the first time and... Uh, it, it never it gets doesn't. any less funny. Thank you. A bit arrogant of me to say that. Um, <laughs> just, just own it. Yeah, just own, own it. it. But you, David, should own Fanning Friday. Hashtag Fanning Friday. That's another great yeah, offshoot of Octopussy. I'm, I desperate, I'm pretty sure you guys were instrumental in that one as well. There were a couple of other people who kind of were talking about Jim Fanning and whatever. And I think, I can't even remember to be honest now, but... I decided to put a bow tie on for work one day and take a photo and use a hashtag Jim Fanning Friday. So you might have seen it's it's like the most niche it really is. joke you could possibly do. I'm just like some people must you know like let's say there are more. I mean the circles we move in, everyone knows who Jim Fanning is. But if there's kind of like a a casualish Bond fan and they're going, what the hell is this guy up to? <laughs> but then you guys are always commenting on it or whatever. And it's, it's you guys who are responsible for me now owning how many dozen yeah. different bow ties. And I, I feel the oh, pressure no, to keep no. it up now, but um, so to speak. I've gone with that already. The first innuendo of the podcast. Oh, no. Yeah, we will be playing. There's plenty yeah. more to come, trust me. Innuendo yeah. fingers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so David, uh, just to go into your... You said, I didn't realise you hadn't been going that long, but you set up a website and almost like a visionary... It feels a lot longer. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but License yeah. to Queer, just, just tell us how it started and what your sort of aims are for it. I'm writing what I want to read. So what this actually is, and, you know, to paraphrase my Twitter and Instagram bios, really early on, and I've barely changed a word of it since, I'm on a mission to uncover what makes James Bond appealing to queer audiences. If I'm honest, when I typed that for the first time and started those accounts and bought the domain name and all that kind of thing... I'm not even sure, I I didn't, it was a very open question almost, in fact I almost phrased it as such, and I wasn't even sure it was appealing to queer audiences. I mean, Ian Fleming famously said, Bond is for red-blooded heterosexuals. (laughs) Well, you know, we're all red-blooded, we know what he meant. We know what (laughs) he meant. Some more red than others. He he wrote it for people who, Yeah. (laughs) yeah, exactly. Essentially, he meant people who want to read something sexy, and usually they they want to kind of you know they're attracted to the the opposite sex essentially there were a few notable gay men you know i didn't see any other queer representation in the bond online community you know if you think about mark o'connell who was the first yeah, yeah. gay man i read who really enjoyed james bond you know we we we've talked on and off a bit over the last few years and his book catching bullets um you know he that was the first time i ever read anything written by an out queer person about james bond i thought oh 
there is another one. There is someone else who is queer and likes James Bond. And then, of course, we've got... I know that sounds ridiculous, yeah, and it certainly sounds ridiculous to me now, 10 months down the line. But at the time, that's how it felt, and it felt like that for some time. So, you know, you've got some of the people like Calvin Dyson, who was an early supporter as well, and obviously he's deservedly massively successful YouTube. Um, you've got Mark Gatiss, who's, of course, yeah, one yeah. of the most famous gay male Bond fans, did that really good documentary some years ago. Um, and he's written those Lucifer Box novels, which kind of riff on Bond as well. But aside from that, I, I, I'll be honest, I basically got fed up of reading a Bond book and me scout hoping there was some mention of some kind of queer character or um, someone behind the scenes. I mean, it's ridiculous that so few books talk about, and this is the one that always springs to mind first. That, I mean, it's so ridiculous that so few books comment on Peter Hunt yes, and the fact that he was a gay man who was openly gay with his colleagues and probably more than most people he he his contributions to Bond they cannot be overestimated I mean as well as being the director of Honor Majesty's Secret Service you know he edited the first five you know beyond Bond his editing has influenced so many other people he also and I, I only learned this yesterday when I was reading the new book about the relationship between um, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman he actually introduced he basically told Cubby that Sean Connery existed while he was working on another film so without Peter Hunt doing that signposting and one can't help think that a gay man would have noticed Sean Connery <laughs> okay yeah so everyone notices Sean Connery, but particularly most gay men will notice Sean Connery. Without that signposting, we might, wouldn't have had Sean Connery's Bond. Bond might not have been successful. We not, might not be here talking about it. And that's just one example. So it's kind of twofold, really. I want queer fans and allies, you know, like you guys, I want, I want everyone to feel really comfortable. And yet at the same time, I also want everyone to appreciate you know, because queer history is often so hidden and it gets written out of history. I want people to really appreciate the contribution that the queer filmmakers have had. And also, it is a mission, really, to try and work out why it's so appealing. Because there are, uh, this film is a notable exception. Diamonds Forever actually has gay characters in it. But that's, that's that you know, wow. Um, <laughs> cool, you know, and actually, me. for the time, 50 years ago, that was quite... That was, I know, I know. That's... That, that, Perhaps it's just worth just saying as well that, you know, if we're talking about queerness and I know that some 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 listeners will know this already, but sometimes people take queer as just being a synonym for gay or whatever, whatever, whatever. Actually, the, uh, you know, queer studies as an academic discipline, which has been around for around 30 years, queer studies often take texts made by and for straight people or cisgender people, if we get onto gender identity, which I'm sure we will with this film, <laughs> they take those texts, <laughs> they take those texts, and then they find out why they work for queer audiences. So actually, it's often that in academia anyway, you know, and I don't want this to sound too heavy going or whatever, but um, I always try to kind of get that blend on the website. I always call it kind of quasi-academic, because I am kind of using academic stuff, but also throwing in penis jokes and things. <laughs> Um, so, you know, <laughs> but, the best way. This is the it's James Bond. Yeah. You yeah. cannot escape James Bond's penis. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I, I, I installed the search <laughs> function on the website yesterday, which I've been meaning to do for some time. Oh, hey. And the, the thing I did to test it is I typed in James Bond penis <laughs> and it, and it catalogued the website by relevance, oh, the amount of times that it, it's come up. I am not the only academic who has written about James Bond's penis, I assure you. It is a massive source of study. Well, <laughs> it's a, a moderate source of study anyway. So, <laughs> what kind of study? <laughs> I can feel a spin-off well, I know. coming from this. <laughs> Let's move no, on, shall we? It's not the size no. that matters, is it? <laughs> I've got endless special episodes just entering my mind now. To go back to the more serious point, <laughs> oh, no. Peter Hunt is certainly one. I'm sure we'll do an episode on him. It is forgotten and overlooked that he is gay. He was gay. And it's almost overlooked his contribution. I know we've only done of his, we've done From Rush With Love so far. I hope we did him justice because we did say mm. how much the editing really does make that film. Mm. And yeah. he almost, particularly with the pre-title sequence, the blueprint, things like that, which have stood the test of time. I mean, you hear hundreds of stories about how Sean was cast, but even the one you, you've said about Sean Connery is another massive, massive uh, bonus for the series, of course. I mean, I don't, you know, there will be some people, I'm sure there might be some people listening as well, I understand this argument that's saying, does it make a, does it make a difference that Peter Hunt was gay? Well, it does in terms of queer history, because it's recognising someone's achievements, but at the same time, yeah, it does. If you watch a, On A Majesty's Secret Service, knowing that it's directed by a gay man, the fact that so much of the film is driven by a woman, and I, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't want to be stereotypical or whatever here, but, you know... Um, earlier on today, my husband and I were watching a documentary on Britney Spears. Oh, um, you know, must so watch that. Gay men, I, I, yeah. for the record, I had I, I had no knowledge of Britney Spears's career at all until this documentary, which I found what? found fascinating. I'm very never, disappointed, I, I, David. You know, so I know I'm such a bad homosexual. <laughs> I'm so bad. I'm I, obsessed you know, with Britney. There are so many things, you know. Well, you know. <laughs> You, proud, you, you can have those gay points, yeah, yeah. and I will, <laughs> I, I, I will rescind my gay membership card. And you know, but all, all joking card, aside, we'll you know, <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. Get to the Playboy card. And there's a gay bit about that as well. But oh, we'll good, get to that good. in a minute. I mean, I don't want to be too stereotypical. We were talking before we started recording about interior design, <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to go down that whole stereotypical route. But that film, that film is so well designed. It is aesthetically so much, so much the head and shoulders above all of the films that came before it, really. And it is really well designed, but also, you know, George Lazenby is shot with a gay male gaze. I, have you heard? Have you heard of the concept of gaze from? Because this will yes, gaze yeah. as in G A Z E, mm -hmm. not G A Y S. Yeah. Like so, uh, yeah. No, okay, you, I want to know. Explain this. it for me, yeah. David. Is that right? Yeah. So um, back in back in 1975, a academic called Laura Mulvey wrote a essay which uh, I'm probably going to get this slightly wrong but it's it, I reference it on the website quite a lot visual pleasures in contemporary cinema something like that apologies if I mangled the title basically she concluded that because most films are made by straight men and nowadays you could throw straight white yeah, men yeah. into there as well but you know she was writing about because most films are made by straight men they are shot with a male gaze, so the camera is the is what the man sees. So think about Honey Rider coming out of the ocean in Doctor mm -hmm. No. 
shot with a straight male gaze. And she said, basically, this is almost all of cinema, particularly Hollywood cinema. It's basically almost all of cinema. Now, you know, you could argue that it took until Casino Royale for Daniel Craig to come out of the ocean, ripped torso and all that kind of thing. Actually, you rewatch Doctor No, Sean Connery spends a long time with his shirt off. And you can, you even though that was shot by a straight man, essentially, you know, Terence Young shot that movie. And for all we know, he was, you know, the red-blooded heterosexual <laughs> that Ian Fleming had in mind and the audiences for, for his films. Yeah, but at the same time, he's making it for everyone. And whether consciously or not, it work, whether he intended to do or not is immaterial, it works for everyone. And particularly, you know, we have, we have at least one, you know, out queer director of Bond. We probably have some more. I'm never going to speculate about someone's sexual orientation or whatever. But if, if you watch the films with that perspective of they are, I, 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 I have a, a, the, a, a hypothesis that actually Bond has been objectified for as, as much as the yep. women have for most of the history of Bond. Maybe not in all of the Roger Moore so. era, but objectified in a different way and whatever. And we, I'm sure we'll get into objectification and there's some really quite awkward sexual gender politics in <laughs> Diamonds Are Forever. But, what are we doing that, Phil? You know, um, everyone, is kind of objecti- everyone is kind of objectified equally in Bond. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that necessarily makes some of the more problematic elements right, but it's definitely the p- a perspective to, uh, to have in mind. Wow. This is endlessly yeah. fascinating, David. Wow. Even queer people have said they've never really thought of Bond from this point of view before. And certainly allies like yourselves have said those sorts of things as well. So to what to what extent is that true for you three? Wow. I think that, that, that Bond, I understand why it's appealing because I think it's, 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 there's something about it that sort of goes beyond like the borders of something about bond because it's about glamour it's about escapism so i can uh, and i can understand that there's sort of something for everyone if you look if you love you know it's adventure it's storytelling it's you know fantasy it's all these things and that's what i've always loved about the series is there's so much in there good bad you know indifferent and you know silly and very serious and and you know kind of really smart filmmaking but i think if you if you're a fan of films and that sort of type of films you know action cinema there's so much to delve into and i think that what, what i've loved about doing this podcast is that you when you go back and watch it and it's 10 years since you've last seen it you think oh, i didn't pick up on that because you know you're well you're assuming you're much more mature now but you know that you've grown and that you've read and you've you know you've just you're more worldly and so therefore you can kind of go oh actually yeah that kind of ties into things but i think for me i think i could totally understand and there's also you know there is that kind of seeing bond as you know he's such an ultimate hero you know and i think you know whether whatever your sexuality you do look up to him as as a desirable figure you know he, this is People want to be him and, you know, the whole kind of, you know, people want to sleep with him and that kind of thing. So I, for me, it comes as no surprise that, you know, like say, not that kind of heteronormative kind of background isn't, you know, it appeals to so many different people because there's so much in there. It's so rich. And I think that's why we're still talking about it and why they're still making films, even though the novels finished a long time ago. But I think it's really interesting to hear, obviously, other people's takes on it, whether it's from a... a, a you know, sexual orientation or kind of gender, it's just really interesting to hear people's... Because, you you know, you, you obviously have your own world view. You try to be kind of take on board things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's always really interesting to, see, to hear someone else's perspective. If you're enjoying Really 007, 
Why not follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram? Look us up at really007pod. I think when we started this, part of my vision for this was it needs to have a different voice to what other podcasts, other commentators have had on James Bond. And I thought, let's just go back to basis and let's just have guys and girls and whoever chatting about Bond as if they were down the pub. Nothing is off the table. No uh, angle at Bond is off the table. Even though we're not maybe... Well, okay, we're famously not the biggest Daniel Craig fans, aren't we? The main six of us, okay. But that doesn't mean I, I want voices on here who love Daniel Craig and who want to tell me not where I'm going wrong, but I want their opinion on it. And I think reading your articles, David, gives us a fresh perspective that hasn't been out there. And, I, you know, I commend you for doing that. I think it it's almost got a life of its own now, hasn't it? Because, like you said, you did it basically, well, it's the kind of thing I'd like to read. But now it's out there. It's like, oh, hang on, there are loads of other people from completely different walks of life, backgrounds, identities, who've co- contributed towards it. And now you're like... Not not you've got a service, but you're also creating not just content, but you're creating conversations within the Bond community. And certainly the articles that we've read, mm. I kind of wish I hadn't, I hadn't even read your From Us With Love article before we did that review, but that, that was enlightening. And the Octopus review. As I was writing that one, I had that one in you guys in mind the whole time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> People like lots of different Bond films, and I never want to kind of make them feel yeah, like, exactly, you know... Yeah their viewpoints aren't valid or whatever, but I had to go for it with the octopusy clown. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> you know, basically, I don't. I, if you think the clown is silly in octopusy, you aren't my friend. Totally agree. That was the one time I've taken a stand. <laughs> you know, I've, I've written on the website, I've written over 100,000 words in the last 10 months. And that was the one sentence which I was like, I sta- this is the hill I die on. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, Bond is such a, it's such a trailblazer, isn't it, Bond? I mean, in so many ways. I think that one of the things, to reiterate what Chris has said, going back over the series and talking about it, you can write all your notes that you want, but you get in this conversation and all of a sudden something sparks with what somebody said and you go down a path thinking, wow, I never thought that this was part of Bond. And and I, I love that. I think the first article I read of yours, David, was the license to kill. Uh, yeah. License to it kill. One. Sorry, I nearly said license to queer one. They're all license to queer articles. <laughs> I think it would that be, was yeah. the um, that was either the second or the third one I wrote. Actually, I decided before I pressed publish on the website, I was like, I need to write three, yeah. and I yeah. chose Diamonds Are Forever, Casino Royale, and License to Kill because yeah. they're three of my favourites. But also, I felt they were the three of the queerest ones. So. I actually think the harder ones, if you want to use that term, the more yeah. serious ones are actually the queerer ones, but we'll get into that anyway. I, I think, I mean, this is fascinating that you said this because because when I, I looked at this, I have to be honest, I just said, where's he going to go with this? Because when I watch like License to Kill, I put it very much in that diehard lethal weapon kind of machismo kind of... Um, thing going on and and that's just named say... two of the games <laughs> of all time absolutely really. well there we go and, this yeah. and this i was waiting for that apart from top gun yeah, yeah. i don't think you could have got well, any game one yeah yeah <laughs> but and this is the whole point is is that it's so great to have another perspective because what really resounded with me was just the sentence that you put about 
Perez eyeing up Timothy Dalton in his room. And I was like, what's he going on about? And then I watched it a few weeks later and I'm like, no, he's absolutely dead on. Like, even if that is not the intentional application, he is definitely giving him an eyeful at that point. And I just love just seeing just this different perspective from different people and how great Bond is that it can be so much to so many people well that's i mean we we will eventually talk about diamonds forever but i know you guys love license <laughs> no so much just as i you know it's 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 it is it is never leaving my top five i know the top five is Good somewhat lad. flexible license to kill is never leaving my top five either yes. so you know it, it's absolutely amazing i could watch that film all day every day yes. and never get bored of it but Perez is a good example. I'll be, you know, you say you you didn't think where is he going to go with this. When I start one of these queer reviews, I don't know where <laughs> I'm going to go with it. I find <laughs> I find it I find it so exciting. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's kind of each each one of the I try to alternate the big pieces and the the smaller pieces. But sometimes I start off and I go, I'm only going to be able to write about a thousand words here, eight thousand words later, yeah. um, because there is just so much there and I'd never seen the Perez thing either Wow! and I'd seen License to Kill 15-20 times probably more than that and I put these I I see it as almost like you know when you put on a, a um, I don't wear glasses laser eye surgery <laughs> but when I used to wear yeah. glasses um, it was like um, I put these lenses on and the world looked different. Yeah. You know, I could see things rather than being really short-sighted. But it's that same kind of idea. I put these queer lenses on and as I'm watching the film, just looking at that element, I see all these things. And I've grown up with these films for, you know, more than 30 years. And I see all these things I've never seen before. And then, like with Perez, I go, OK, it's a minor character, has barely any lines. Yeah, there's kind of a bit of a bromance going on with Sanchez. And there is, I mean, all of Sanchez's guys, you know, there's definitely kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, something going on there. Um, you know, that's how he instills loyalty or what, I don't know. There's something going on there. But... And then I looked into the the actor who played Perez, and I, again, I'm not going to out somebody, but he is um, quite famous on Mexican TV for playing gender non-conforming and um, gay and bisexual characters. And I'm like, okay, you know, right. I am not going to speculate about the actor, but there's there's definitely something in that character. And he's either the actor has been told to play it or he's playing it to make his character stand out more. Because it's not there in the script, probably. But, but that's on the, the set, actors, someone decided that was a good choice. Yeah. When we spoke to Anthony Stark, he, he was saying how he's he's given the script. I think he gave an example mm -hmm. of, well done, Franz, another 80 million. That's it. That's all it says. And as an actor, you've got to bring yeah. your talent, what you're good at, and make the most of it. And create characters, and even in just yeah, Perez. I mean, he's only he's in it quite a bit, but he's he's no massive lines, has he, or anything like that. He's got to bring across what he can, and yeah, don't want to speculate, like you say. But if that's what he wanted to do, eventually it's got through. <laughs> it's taken thirty years for someone to realise it, anyway. Yeah. Well, maybe we weren't the first, but uh, I was just going back to what John said about the kind of there's so much in Bond films, and tied in with a bit of what Chris said as well. They've got that that much that many layers to them. I know they are, you know. I I, I never buy that, you know. Any film is just kind of like a throwaway, kind of ephemeral piece of 
what whatever because it, it is every film is like a time capsule of the time it was made in what all those hundreds of people were thinking as you know they yep, put it together yep. and i find that absolutely fascinating it's one of the things that i love about cinema more so even though my background is in you know books and stuff you know a book is usually written by one person you get that one person's point of view and you know that's good in a way but a film is so many different people working together so many influences on it and all that kind of thing that you know, particularly Bond, it reflects the time period in which it's made. And you're right, and what you said, Tom, you go back to you go back to these films over time and again what Chris said, you you are a different person when you're watching those films. Mm. So we'll definitely talk about this with Diamonds Forever, because when I was a closeted <laughs> gay kid, you know, watching watching Winton Kid hold hands as they walk through the desert. You know, apart the first thing that I did was look around to kind of make sure no one was watching me, but my eyes were laser focused on that television. Obviously, I viewed that you know completely differently than I would today. Oh, I mean, we could do a whole episode on them, couldn't we? I've just there's a couple of things, a couple of things <laughs> yeah. I want to mention. I remember, I'll probably forget. The first one is yes, there's an academic reading of these things that one can do. Uh, I did English language literature for A level. And so did so so did Matthew, and we both had Doctor Holland, our teacher, who, who was gay. We did uh, William Golding's The Spire, which is well, <laughs> a very gay novel. And if you again with some reading topic, I don't know whether Pete you've read it, David, but absolutely brilliant. But it, I'm putting it on my yeah, reading yeah, list. I haven't read that. Yeah, one. <laughs> it's it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I think I fell in love with it because of Doctor Holland's reading of it. One of the things he taught me, a more general point, was yes, the author has intentions for the piece and they definitely want you to get those double meanings and the, the hidden themes through them but in certain aspect aspects it's perfectly all right to read your own reading of it even if it wasn't intended and if you get that from there that doesn't make it invalid and i think it's the same way when you're watching sanchez and his men however they operate if you if you were seeing one sort of way of looking at it and imagining the backstory to it that's no different to what everybody else is doing, isn't it? When when they see a character, you, you're also thinking of who they are based exactly. on what you've seen. Again, I don't want to make this sound too academic, but just building on what you said, I think Bond is so good for this because we project ourselves onto the character. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, Bond is quite a blank slate, and so we can move through his world. But I also think, you know... I, I, I sometimes I've, I've kind of almost written this sentence several times on the website um, so you heard it here first but I think I sometimes think that Bond films are a bit like a Rorschach test you look at them and you everyone sees something slightly different Definitely. for what you just said you know what the what the creators intended is not necessarily what we take away from it and that that's so important because i think what you said about how we can take what we see from it and i think that that is very relevant in the older films with mm. specifically mm. with the daniel craig era there is very much especially on the producer's part, they're very much talking a lot of the time about the need to for equality in certain areas and stuff. And, and one of the main ones is obviously Lashana Lynch's 007. Do you think this adverse, um, how do I say it, like they're bringing it out saying that this is what they're doing, Yeah. does that take away some of this dual meaning and it open to interpretation that the previous ones did? Do you, Or do you think that there's still so much to take from the newer stuff as well? 
I think the world that we're living in requires a certain degree of, and I hate this phrase, but it requires a certain degree of virtue signaling. So that's, you know, if, if anyone's not sure, it's that you kind of saying, you know, yes, we are. So I remember in the 90s when Goldeneye was coming out, there was that discourse in the media around and, you know, it's in the film as well. You know that um, uh, you know it's a female M because women yeah. are as mm. equal as men, and which is obviously patently untrue. You know, um, you know that obviously, you know. Um, but in a sense, I think Bond ca- kind of. I think Bond has. I don't want to put this responsibility on Bond, but because Bond is such a mass, um, has such mass appeal, I think it really does have the power to influence people's attitudes and behaviors do i think that it's if i if i'm hearing you right it's that do you think that making that so i to be honest i think that i might be wrong here but i think some of that discussion has always happened bond has always been something that sells tabloid newspapers you know and you know other more reputable forms of media as well you know i write a website we do podcasts whatever Mm -hmm. there's lots of discussion around Bond anyway Mm, and are the producers really doing any form of virtue signaling or kind of raising awareness if you want to think of it that way rather than which is a much more positive way of of seeing it I think because virtue signaling implies you're just doing something tokenistically and I I, I genuinely don't think I mean I think the you know whenever No Time to Die is released it'll be a it'll be a time capsule of the time that it was made in you know regardless of whether the mobile phones are up to date or whatever society will have moved on quite uh, quite uh, you know quite a bit even in just a couple of years so I think raising awareness of it outside of the film itself I'm not sure when we view the films that are being made now in 10 or 20, 30 years time, I'm not sure we'll remember that discussion, to be perfectly honest. Mm. I think we'll just see how it's, how it's portrayed in the film. I'm, I, 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 do, I do hate tokenistic kind of ticking and equality and diversity box for the sake of it. Mm. Which is why, you know, if we do ever end up with a, a significant queer character in a James Bond story, um, we've ob- arguably had significant queer characters already, but if we have someone who's openly gay or um, they, they aren't, aren't cisgendered, uh, whatever, if we, if we do eventually end up with that, I hope it isn't just in a kind of, you know, it is a very obviously tokenistic, it almost needs to be... Like, I don't know if you guys watch Doctor Who. I've stopped watching it in the last few years because it, yeah, it got timey-wimey and I didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, but the, um, the the Russell T. Davies era, written by a gay man, incorporated those characters in that world and it was kind of like a character would refer to their wife or, you know, a female character. A male character would kind of, um, you know, look longingly at another man or, a, you know, whatever. And it almost needs to be like that. It needs to be so usualized mm. that it isn't having attention drawn on it. Unfortunately, I think that the tabloid press will always jump on those things and will always make a bigger deal of it than it actually is in the film. How many times have we followed the press junkets of Bond movies? And it's been, you know, I mean, you, you get it a lot with the brand partners. It's kind of like, this is a huge part of the movie. It's made the tabloid headlines or whatever. And it's in the film for three seconds. That's what happened with... There are so many uh, times the, that that's happened. Was it the last Rise of Skywalker? And it was almost an own goal, wasn't it? It was like, oh, there's a big gay scene in this film. 
you won't believe it. It's it's groundbreaking. And then everyone was in the cinema and it was like, what's well, for for about quarter yeah. of a second? Well, then, like you say, well, it, if you didn't have the press and no one knew about it and you just saw it casually in the background, that's the sort of normalising it, and it is progress, isn't it? So it's a bit. I feel a bit sorry for them yeah. in that sense, but yeah, I do as well. I feel sorry for them as well because I'm kind of wanting them to have their cake and eat it. I'm wanting them not to make a big deal of it. And yet at the same time, because it's Bond and it's, you know, Phil's column inches in newspapers, it will be talked about. Whatever creative decisions they make will be scrutinised. I think just going back to John's question for a sec, I think particularly for those first two, maybe even three films, certainly not by Thunderball, they could do things in those films which were quite daring for the time mm. in terms of sexuality, not sexual orientation, certainly sexuality. Bond films have always been sex, sexy films. They could do things without that scrutiny and I think that's what they can't do now. Mm. We're in this sort of middle time, aren't we, where we're assuming the future will be bright in that sense. Yeah. But thankfully, we can still watch these films without a sense of sort of guilt, or not too much guilt on them yet. You do, you don't want them to become these films where, particularly this one, if the consensus is, say, Winton Kidd is a terrible gay stereotype, let's cancel it. I wouldn't like that to happen, you know. Particularly with this, the Black Lives Matter, you know, we go on to all these topics. I prefer the fact that they're there and we can talk mm-hmm. about them and learn from them, rather than, guys, that didn't happen, forget it, don't watch that. So I, I hope that doesn't happen with the Bond films, is my point, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Good. <laughs> Fascinating conversation. It's a, yes, yeah. Hi, I'm Rob. I'm Simon. And I'm James. We want to talk about those movies. Those supposedly bad movies. Those movies that bombed. To see if they weren't that bad, after all, join us every other Tuesday on the For Your Reconsideration podcast part of the pod dojo podcast network you can catch us on itunes spotify and all your usual podcast apps and it won't cost you a solitary bean mate <laughs> it's like it's free <laughs> it's just like it's free <laughs> i think we're supposed yeah, we to are. be diamonds <laughs> forever yeah. aren't we yeah, well, <laughs> i haven't even asked you welcome to the yeah, really yeah, double yeah, 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 i know <laughs> It's so great to be here. Those 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 lovely endless digressions. I'm now a part of one. Yes, I'm, a, yeah. I'm about to go back to your, your website. I'm afraid, David. Sorry, I know. This, at least this is this is good airtime for it. Anyway, oh, yeah. if you must, if you yeah. must, Tom. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's licensedtoqueer.com with yes, two C's, yes, yes. not an S, <laughs> because because we're British, don't you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good. <laughs> I was going to ask you. You said you have the sort of when you're watching the Bond films now, you watch them with a queer lens, but you're also watching them with a gay lens. So there's almost two things yeah. going on there, isn't there? Presumably, before you started the website, we yeah. just um, as a gay guy, you would just watch them like that, and now you've got all these other influences and not pressures, but or voices that you're you're almost uh, writing for. Yeah, hopefully, I never lose sight of the fact that I am in a relatively privileged yeah, position yeah. in society, and I'm not going to do virtue signaling here. I mean, this absolutely 100%. You know, apart from being gay, I am a white, middle class, cisgendered ish. <laughs> we'll get into that maybe later. Cisgendered, I'm wearing nail varnish today. I don't, oh, but, I can see it now. That's, that's about as um, non gender conforming as I non gender conforming as I get. Apart from, yeah, as I say, apart from being gay i am in the minor i am in the majority yeah, yeah. kind of group the privileged group in society 
and I do feel a responsibility to try and get as many different voices on the website as possible because although I enjoy writing stuffs so I'll you know I am a gay man a white gay man especially I mean if I think about some of the pieces that I've done more recently like Live and Let Die I felt I really couldn't discuss Live and Let Die without bringing in aspects of race Absolutely. theory there's there's a great intersectionality between race and sexual orientation I, I you know I probably spent longer on the live and let die review probably more than any of the others because I felt that responsibility to do my research because I just couldn't draw on my and I, I have no idea how to see the world through the eyes of a black person only a gay person I don't want to make sure I don't want to make it sound like they are directly comparable because they are not so that was that was one example. When I came to write the octopusy one, it took me as long to write the octopusy section about octopusy herself and her society, her floating island. It took me as long to write that section as every other section yeah. in that review. So, you know, however long it took, 10 hours to do the octopusy one, it took me 10 hours to do all the rest. Because I felt like I could kind of write about gay men and that sort of stuff quite easily and the villains and so forth. But Octopussy, you know, there's a there's a very strong argument, and there is some other academic literature on this, that Octopussy represents kind of like a lesbian utopia. I am not a lesbian. It's <laughs> just about... Yeah? yeah? I have friends who are lesbians, but, you know, and I've got friends who are lesbians who are Bond fans. And I did feel a responsibility, even though they're not necessarily credited in the piece... I did feel a responsibility to run past them some of the things that I was going to say. But it's the same thing when I, I've got some really, um, uh, um, really passionate um, uh, trans and non-binary bond friends. And although some of those aren't out, so you won't find their name on the website, but they have contributed to pieces. Some of them, some of them are mentioned by name, but haven't come out as trans or non-binary. Um, but whenever I write something about the trans person, a trans person's experience of the world. I always run it past someone because I'm like, yeah, does right. this sound like I'm getting it right or not? And the last thing I, the last thing I ever want to do is shut down debate. And I think you were alluding to this topic. Absolutely. Just, you know, when, in my in my in my day job, I'm just like I always say to staff when I'm training them and to the kids, I'd much rather you use the terminology and get it wrong than not use the terminology because if you don't talk about things you don't usualize things and things don't improve so i think sometimes people are reluctant and i certainly think this is the case in the bond community i think sometimes people are open to but if you just look at okay google winton kid and anything that's not on my website you will find lots of people using euphemisms for gay and whatever they don't want to use the language Whereas I was very adamant right from the start, I am going to use the right words for things. Yeah, and occasionally throw in something that might be considered, you know, quite archaic, but do it in, you know, like I always have a section in the queer reviews where I call the allies friends of double O Dorothy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just because I love that phrase. You know, if, if, a, if a straight person was to call me a friend of Dorothy, I would, of course, be offended. Unless I knew, yeah, the yeah. if you guys would say, it, obviously it wouldn't be a problem, you know, because I knew you guys would be joking about it and whatever. But um, so I'm not that sort of person to be easily offended at all. But at the same time, yeah, I, I think it's really important that people do talk about things that are taboo, but without fear of causing 
offence. And I think people, you know, there's a, I despise the term, you know, um, woke, because for me, you know, if, you know, woke is a good thing in my world, in used in the right way, because you are waking up to the fact that things are not equal and so on and so on and so forth. But a lot of people use it defensively because I think a lot of the time they fear talking about those things and getting it wrong. So I think what we have to work towards in society is, you know, and sometimes people post things on the License to Queer Instagram. There was something earlier today where I was just like, hmm, is that the right way to phrase that? But not really. Um, so it's kind of like I always respond in a kind of supportive capacity and then they always come back. I've only ever had one really offensive thing put on there, which I'm amazed at, to be perfectly honest. Um, and uh, everyone on the License to Queer Instagram yeah. rallied around <laughs> um, and uh, shut that person down really quickly before we reported them to Instagram and got them banned. Wow. Uh, so one time one time that it really did work. But, you know, sometimes people phrase things. And it's not the best way of phrasing things. I'm not saying I get it right all the time. There have been a few times as we've been talking already where I've thought, okay, I'm, you know, I'm about to talk about, uh, you know, trans person's experience of the world or, you know, non-binary person or someone who's different from me. And it's kind of like language is so important. And some of those words have such specific meanings, but, you know, it's better to talk about it than not. You know, my, my wife, Jennifer, is black. And since I've been trying to get her into the Bond films, you do when you're watching them with her. You do sort of have your your hat on to think someone is watching it who hasn't had the same life experience as me, and things are sort of without saying woke or unawoken. <laughs> things are alerted to you that before you might have thought was slightly inappropriate or yeah, feel a bit uncomfortable watching oh, that with Jennifer. Yeah. And yes, good. I need to improve my behaviour yeah. on on certain things. I think that's 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 the beauty of your website. I think it does for Bond fans. To be fair, I think Bond fans in general are pretty friendly, aren't pretty easygoing, they are. fairly non-controversial. I've seen very little abuse. We've had the, the biggest abuse we had was one guy just saying, "Can you can you stop having music in the background playing in your in your in your episodes? It's really off-putting." <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's as bad as it got has got. So I'll settle for that. But uh, <laughs> yes, you, you do you do end up wa watching it with a fresh pair of eyes, which can only be good, I think. And like we say, we want as many voices and many people come in and, from totally different life yeah. experiences as we can. We're all learning, aren't we? Like, I, I'll, you know, I'll hold my hands up about, oh, I don't know, until about eight or nine years ago, I had no real understanding of gender. You know, that's a, that's a easy, it's, yeah. it's a massive topic. You know, I had quite a binary conception of gender. And then I actually had a five minute conversation with a trans person. And that five minute conversation changed my life yeah. because I was able, I didn't, wasn't able to see the world through their eyes, but talking to them and about their experiences, you know, we were just kind of getting coffee at a conference and, you know, and just, I, I honestly think a lot of, I always say the, the thing that, you know, this might be come across as really naive here, but the best way to educate out intolerance is to try and give people the opportunity to talk to people who are different from them. I know that sounds really, really cheesy, but if, if everyone you know, did I, I, I don't tolerate, you know, I've, I've, yeah, I've never, I've never had any, okay. There have been a few comments on uh, mostly Twitter on the licensed queer Twitter, which I've thought, would I want a trans friend to read that? 
because it's got that very old-fashioned kind of idea of you know which lots of us did i remember i remember laughing there's a really good documentary about this actually on i think netflix i remember laughing uproariously at ace ventura pet detective in the 90s yeah i, I know where you're gonna go with i this, don't know yeah. if you found that <laughs> yeah. movie yeah. remotely yeah. funny mm-hmm. but there's there's essentially the big joke of that film hinges on a trans yeah, person yeah. and i look at that now and i go how did we ever find this funny? I, I can remember me and my sister laughing in the, the lounge as we watched um, watched that film over and over again and the song from The Crying Game yeah, came on and whatever. Yeah. And I'm just like, how did we ever... How was that mainstream entertainment suitable for kids? It's not not suitable for kids because it contains a, a, you know, a trans character played by a cisgendered woman you know um for, for god's sake it's you know it's not suitable for kids because it's just creating a, a hateful version of the world and how did we you know that was that was within our lifetimes that was in our teenage years we watched that kind of stuff so you know we've all learned yeah. haven't we and we will continue well, to learn thing as well we, okay, we won't go on a massive uh, digression on Britney, as much as I would love that. Uh, yeah, let's not get <laughs> stuck into Britney. Right, we'll be here all night. But uh, thankfully, I think the Bond films don't... They've never got it that wrong, have they? Okay, Winston Kidd, we're going to have a big section on that in this in this episode. And if you interpret mm-hmm. it one way, it could be extremely destructive, and David has his, his personal account of that. If you read his um, articles, of course, he goes through that. But we will discuss it tonight. David, right before we before we get on the film, just a few more questions because I, I no because before we get back <laughs> on topic, <laughs> um, we ask everybody who comes on on the pod just your relationship with Bond growing up and it, up to today. Now I know you've already done where you are now. You know you can go over that again. That's fine. <laughs> Just specifically growing up, you know, what was your introduction to it and how did you fall in love with Bond? No, no, I will save everyone. No, 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 I'll no. Try to be That'll concise. be in the body. The body so, uh, yes. <laughs> I think like a lot of people, I grew up with Bond. I think, I think it's a very dim memory. I think I must have only been about five or six. I'll leave that to you to debate whether uh, that was no, no. too young for a child to watch. I know some of you are parents, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> whether that's uh, whether that's too young to indoctrinate a child into Bond. But uh, I think it was my grandparents who were babysitting my sister and me. So my sister would have been about three or four. Um, she's a couple of years younger than me. And I'm pretty sure we watched Goldfinger and it was just like completely different to Thomas the Tank Engine and Transformers, which were the two series I was obsessed with growing up. And it was just... Okay, what is this? But I'm pretty sure it sowed the seed of uh, really there and then. Um, I mean, I'd remember, you know, I watched, I suspect like you guys, I watched the films on ITV with ad breaks in them and I taped them off TV. It's um, what Mark O'Connell calls the um, calls the process catching bullets. The idea that you'd just catch a film as it kind of fired it fired at you, really. And that was definitely my experience to the point that when I was re-watching Diamonds Are Forever with my husband last night, there are certain parts of the film which, as <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm going to say, yeah, yeah, Chris no, nodding yeah. already, there are certain parts of the film which I'm just like, and next there's going to be an advert for DFS back yes. holiday sale. <laughs> you know, it's like so many parts of the movie yeah. which I'm just like, and now for the ad break. Yeah. <laughs> so even now, I watch those films on VHS tape so many times that... I can't stop myself thinking there's an advert about to come on. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I I watched them out of order. And 
Um, funny enough, a work colleague has recently asked me for advice. This is like the best request ever. It's like she wants to get her daughter into Bond. And I'm just like, what order do I start in? And so I, I spent eight far too long deciding the order to watch them in. And what I've tried to do is try to recreate the experience I had watching them out of order. I think it's a much better idea to kind of jump around the different bonds and I think you get much a much better flavour for the character. I would never want to kind of take a take someone who's never seen a bond film from Doctor No through to, you know, Spectre or whatever. You know, you want to jump around. But the one that I always remember being on TV more than any other and I don't know if ITV were just obsessed or whatever, with The Spy Who Loved Me. It seemed to be on TV all the time in the late 80s and early 90s to the point that I always thought Jaws was in about half of the James Bond mm. films. Yeah. I remember <clears throat> having that conversation with my dad. I was like, Jaws is in most of them though, isn't he? No. So it came as something of a shock when I was a teenager that Jaws was only in two Bond films. So I think my dad's influence was also quite big. He had the pan paperbacks, which currently reside in our top bedroom. And they're the ones that I always photograph for the website. So I I, um, I feel it's going gonna, gonna to sound like my dad's dead here. He's not. <laughs> but um, I, um, I, it's, it's kind of, I, I always, I always, whenever I, just whenever clearing I out your room, David. when he's dead, um, I will, <laughs> I will, exactly. So I've basically stolen my dad's old paper. My dad is the least materialistic person I know. So he won't mind me having his pan paper collection. I haven't asked him about it. But, uh, so yeah, um, so I actually started reading those as well. And I wrote an article quite early on on Licensed Square. I think, no, I know that the first Bond novel I ever picked up and it took me like, I think weeks or months to read. I was eight years old and I read Thunderball and I remember thinking, I remember thinking this is so much slower than the film, <laughs> uh, um, you know, and also where's the jetpack? So there are, there are, there are, but obviously that's otherwise quite faithful to the film and I'm not sure it's a wise idea I wouldn't recommend to my colleague at work whose child whose daughter is eight funnily enough um, to, that she starts her on the on the James Bond novels necessarily uh, because there's some quite interesting uh, bits in there for an eight-year-old but I I um I uh I, yeah so I, I read the I read the Bond books most most of them I read through I um through my teenage years and I think I finished the last one off when I was like 19 or something like that. So that's kind of like my history of Bond, really. So and did you have a favourite Bond growing up? Favourite Bond actor? I always resist. Um, and again, I did it's a piece on this question, about... I, I, I hate the codename theory so much. And the uh, the idea that, you know, I, ne I never have a problem with there being multi-Bonds at all. Yeah, yeah. And so I always have a real hard time choosing a Bond. So obviously Connery was the first film I saw. Moore was the one I saw on TV more than anyone else. Um, I remember seeing the net ITV network premiere of The Living Daylights. In fact... That video I watched so much. You know when um, you know when uh, Dalton says, "Whoever she was, I must have scared the living daylights out of her." That's one of those things that I know. That is an ad break. He's about to start an ad break. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's definitely. I can't watch Living Daylights now without thinking there's an advert coming up. So yeah, I mean, li Living Daylights. I remember I watched License to Kill. I watched with one of my one of my uh, best friends, who I'm still friends with now. And he, he'll he come up later on when we come to Diamonds of Forever, funnily enough. Uh, but um, he he's one of his relatives. I think I think his uncle, his uncle uh, owned a video shop. And so we actually watched License to Kill on video. We must have been about 11 or uh, 12. Yeah, 15, I'm not sure it? when that video yeah. came out. But we watched the rental copy of that. And I remember thinking at the time, 
this is a bit more grown up, isn't it? <laughs> so I had that same kind of feeling that I had with the kind of novels and, and whatever. So I, lo- I love both Dalton movies and that's why I prioritised doing oh. those for the website oh. as well. I've got, to, I've, I've got to say, I have a real soft spot for Brosnan. Your yes. lights, come that's, on. That's, that's, <laughs> was the bond, that was my Bond, essentially. It was the first one I saw in the cinema. So, you know, I was born in 1982. So I was like, what, 13 when I saw Goldeneye at the cinema? So that's always going to be there to an extent. And a bit like you guys, I, I'll be honest, I struggle with Craig sometimes. Although Casino Royale is probably my favourite overall Bond film because of the way it deconstructs the character and builds him back up, which is incredibly queer, by the way. <laughs> you know, the, all that questioning of identity. It's the, one of the most queer Bond films you can possibly get. And it's that kind of structured around that question of who am I? Yeah. Which is yeah. always a really interesting question of a story. But actually, I'm not especially fond of any of the other Craig movies. I think Skyfall's overrated, personally. Spectre is not as bad as people say. I wish Quantum was better because I like the story, but not the execution. So apart from Casino Royale, I'm not really... And it's nothing against Daniel Craig himself, per se. I just think his films aren't very good. Rob is uh, quietly clapping somewhere, listening to this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I thought he might be. And diamonds, diamonds are forever. It's, uh, <laughs> it's. I, I think it's one of the ones. <laughs> oh, is that yeah, what we're well, talking about? I'm, t- I'm yeah. trying to tie it into because it, it's one of the more ubiquitous ones that we saw hundreds of times as kids. Mm. Our older brother James, who's in his forties now, he he did the you know the whenever just before Christmas he did the run through you know vote your best bonds the top 20, 24, you know in order. And I think he had Man with the Golden Gun top because he was just grew up on Roger and he's obsessed. But I think he had diamonds in his top two or three. He's a, you know it's he loves the sort of slightly more silly laid back ones that you can just throw on and enjoy. There is a bit more to this as uh, like Man with the Golden Gun's got a very serious some dark yeah. sides to it, isn't it? Uh, it yeah. It's yeah. one of those growing up where I must have seen it a hun- maybe a hundred times, and I haven't seen it for a good ten mm. years. I don't think. So it was so interesting, like you say, watching it with a fresh pair of eyes after having started the podcast. So Diamonds Are Forever is something of an anomaly in the James Bond franchise, but it actually kick-started a less serious side to the character, especially when Roger Moore was handed the baton. Coming after the relative disappointment of George Lazenby's only entry with Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I'm not, I'm not saying that's my opinion, that, that was opinion at the time, uh, there was a feeling that taste had changed now that we were entering the 70s. But these days, and you know, I'm sure David will say, it's a bit of a shame because it's, it's almost seen as an embarrassment, some might say, by some fans in this series. It's sort of looked at not as fondly, perhaps laughed at a little bit, ridiculed. But rest assured, we are going to give it a real once-over and we are gonna, we're going to find that we, we are going to triumphly... Well, we're going to be semi-cheerleaders for this film. At least some of us are. After, after we've finally run through it all. So Sean Connery was back on board. That's the, the first big thing that it had, I suppose, in its favour. And this would be his final official appearance as 007, of course. Never say never again. You know, we, we, we seem to mention that all the time. I think probably all of you guys will agree. He, he appeared to be having more fun than he was in You Only Live Twice. It, it's got that in its canon before, yeah, before we even sort of uh, start properly. Just going through each actor's final Bond appearances... 
like I say, we're not counting Never Say Never Again for the purpose of this. That's a, that's a small print. So we have the outstanding A View to a Kill for Roger. David, you do like you do like A View to a Kill, don't you? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a massive I knew you did. On, our ki- you did. on our kitchen wall. <laughs> pride of praise. Like pride of place, absolutely. Good. Didn't you see us when we did yes. the Tanya Roberts Memorial? Your husband screening? was in the, the miner's outfit. So I got the white... Yeah. Yeah. So I, I went... This is how crazy we are in our house. Okay, so I had the white dinner jacket and whatever sorted. I bang, you know, I'll I'll put that on for any reason, just to open the door. You know, the postman gets a <laughs> the official gets license treat. to queer out. Uh, so, uh, but the uh, if he's into that sort of thing, yeah. we don't know. Um, but uh, um, or, but yeah, so um, I, my um, husband thought he had because my husband works in construction. Uh, that's not the that not kind of like he's on the site sort of thing all the time, but he does sometimes have to kind of go onto site. So he's got. Um, it, it's not like the village people or something. Like that. Uh, but but uh, was there a construction worker in the village people? Anyway, long story short, my husband has a hard hat. <laughs> I'm trying to picture the village people now. No, no, yeah. definitely. Not. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, he has a hard hat. But he thought he thought he had coveralls. Lo and behold, about an hour and a half before we watched a view to a kill, he realised there were no coveralls in the garage or the car boot. So I went to B and Q to buy coveralls <laughs> just so he could wear coveralls, his hard hat and gold stiletto heels <laughs> while we watched A View to a Kill. That is how committed we are in our household to Bond. They're taking on the Teamsters. Yeah. <laughs> See you, mate. <laughs> no, I, I relished seeing that photograph, uh, David. It, it was, I showed it to Jennifer, she absolutely loved it. So uh, A View to a Kill was Roger's last and... We love it, I think. Licence to Kill was Tim's last, only second, but I'm obviously obsessed with that. And... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Dine of the day for, yeah, not quite uh, the, the buyout it was as the others. So it's not it's not all uh, no. plain sailing for your final appearances. But we'll see what No Time to Die has in store for Daniel. I think it can probably only be a step up from Spectre. I know it's not as bad as everyone says, David, but still. To Diamonds. To di- yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's dodgy, yeah. The terms of the plot, Bond must infiltrate a diamond smuggling ring, which just so happens to be run by arch-nemesis Blofeld. Although it's not really explored that this is the guy who's just had his wife killed. Yeah, We'll deal with that fairly swiftly anyway. Um, anyway, this lively and unlikely adventure goes from Amsterdam to Las Vegas to... Do you want to say it all, all together? <laughs> John's favourite... <laughs> Guess what the buzzer for the quiz is going to be. Well, 
You've been waiting for him. Asking for him. Now he's here. Who are you? My name is Bond. James Bond. He's back in a new Bond spectacular. Kill him! Welcome to hell, Blofeld. He's back. Good evening. And we're back to what great movies are all about. Hey, what the hell is this? Hey, listen, you can't do this to me. I've got friends in this town. Outrageous, fun-making thrills. I didn't know there was a pool down there. He's back. The character who runs rings around his enemies in Diamonds Are Forever. Forever, forever. And they're back. Some rare facets of female bondage. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. I don't dress for the hired help. Starring Jill St. John, Charles Gray, and he's back as Blofeld, 007 style. Good evening, 007. From the Diamond Territory of South Africa. Curious how everyone who touches those diamonds seems to die. The canals of Amsterdam. To the gaming halls of Las Vegas. Hi, I'm Plenty. But of course you are. Plenty of two. Named after your father, perhaps. To the rocket sites of Nevada. Sean Connery. Alias James Bond 007. Is back in action. Very much ITV often for me. It was very much kind of seeing it outside of. There was no context. I had not seen Her Majesty at Service. I didn't know where. I just thought. I suppose even as a kid, I didn't kind of register that Bolt, Dalt, that, um, that Connery was getting well, looked considerably older than he did in you know Doctor No. That just didn't because he, he's just he's a grown up. I didn't see age so. Seeing it and 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 yeah, it was just wait. Did I miss? Did I miss something about a wife? When when did that <laughs> happen? Did that happen off screen? Did that? Was there another? Fi- I, so yeah, because I was again I, when I saw them, I didn't watch them in chronological order. I watched them whenever in an ITV, you know. And so you were jumping all over the place. So for Diamonds Are Forever was just kind of just sits in with the Roger Moore. It feels like mm. the the template for for Roger Moore. So I I came at it with no kind of no baggage. It was just just f- a fun film, and you know there was and also a, a very odd, weird film. <laughs> where at times, as a kid, I was like, "This is just a bit. This is just weird. Really weird scenes and 
like the dialogue and the tone, I just couldn't quite. I suppose it's uh, trying to. It's like the equivalent of watching Flash Gordon as a kid. It's like there's, there's something I'm missing here that I'm not picking up on, and I know <laughs> it's, it's like. The grown-ups will get this, but I don't. <laughs> so for me, it was just... But then it didn't matter because, you know, you had a car chase and then you had, you know, all these kind of, the, you know, the set pieces. And I suppose, you know, it, it didn't have the... Spe- I suppose didn't have the spe- sort of spectacular kind of set pieces that Roger Moore had. You know, when you think about it, there's not a great deal of action, is there, apart from kind of lots of car chases. and There's a lot of cat and mouse. It's quite relatively plot heavy but i loved it because it was vegas it looked like fun everyone looked like they were having fun it was a little bit silly which is as a kid i I, you know i really enjoyed and it surprised me and it was also really scary it is you know the the when they're in the um the crematorium that music (laughs) start prickling because it's just as soon as you hear that kind of choral orchestra start playing it's just the, the, the sense of dread and (laughs) <laughs> I wanted to. No, I'm not. I'm not. No, uh, maybe for cheap seats. <laughs> uh, I think that yeah, it just kind of it just it's such a such a strange film. And I think it was only later on when you kind of see when you've seen them all and you've watched them all a, a few times how it sits and it is a bit of an odd one. But that's not necessarily a bad thing in the Bond series. John. Yeah, I, I have a funny relationship with it. Really, in a lot of ways. I think when you're younger. When I was getting into Bond, my mum says, "Oh, you need to watch Diamonds Are Forever," and I think that that is uh, it's quite synonymous with like culture when I was growing up in terms of that it was actually one of the films that was always mentioned as a classic Bond film in a lot of ways. And I remember watching it and thinking, "Yeah, it's all right. You know, it, it's fun. It's fine." And then I remember watching Majesty's Secret Service and. I, well, I shared last time on the music episode how how affected I was by what what had happened at the end of that, and I was like, I wonder what happens next. <laughs> and then when I realised yeah. that it was Diamonds Are Forever was the next thing, <laughs> I was absolutely just I, I, I I'm an eleven year old at the time, and I felt robbed. That's the only way I can describe it. As I felt like what what an absolute missed opportunity. And so for a long time, Diamonds Are Forever, I've always had this kind of, what should we say, This it's this inkling at the back where I'm just like, I can never shake it because I think, all right, I'll try and watch this, but I always think what it could have been. And that's my thing, is I that's my inkling with it. I always think, oh, this could have been George Lazenby's revenge story and we could have had some film here. But what I've managed to do over the last five years is managed to separate that and I found a way and a theory in my head that manages to stop that and I'll go into <laughs> that quickly. I'll go into that when the film starts. And I can appreciate the film for what it is now. Uh, I, I think the dialogue is criminally underrated, actually. I think the dialogue is one of the strongest parts of this film and I can watch this and what it, it does know what it is. It, it, to me, it falls into a similar kind of category as Moonraker. As it, it knows what it is. It's not trying to be clever. It, it it's trying to you know it's trying to do and it sets what it sets out to do. I think it achieves. So for that, I can appreciate knowing what I'm going to get with it. And uh, I, I watched it again last night. And as I put in the group chat, I think it's the most I've ever enjoyed watching it. And I've got to that point with it where I can enjoy it and I can appreciate it. So I'm really looking forward to talking about it. Love it. 
Love it, John. This is progress already. <laughs> David, you, your voice has had a bit of a rest now, so go on. Uh, what... <laughs> <laughs> um, the yeah. So that's what everyone says at work as well. You just can't I, shut him up. I was being kind. So yeah. in one of the in one of the least combative kind of responses uh, ever, I agree with everything that you guys have just said, um, and I am in no doubt that some form of bizarre nostalgia taints everything I think about Diamonds Are Forever. I don't. I you know for me it feels grown up. I think the word that always comes to mind when I think about Diamonds Forever is scuzzy. Everything is a bit <laughs> dirty. Yeah. In 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 every kind of sense of the word, but mostly in the sense of I don't know. I've never been a smoker, but you know when adults, when, when, I, I've never been that. Well, in fact, I was that kid who kind of saw because my mom's been a smoker for my entire life. Uh, my dad hasn't, but my mom is. And I remember seeing, I have a very early memory. So this is probably where, you know, um, social services might be getting, I'm, I'm too old now, I'm 38, social services can't get involved. But I, I did remember seeing my mom smoking cigarettes and thinking that looks cool. Yeah. And my mum's response, because she's, the, uh, you know, she she uh, she kind of didn't want me to go down the same path she did, I suppose. We've never really had much of a conversation about this, but she stuck a cigarette in my mouth and I instantly did not want to smoke because it was the most disgusting thing ever. But I imagine <laughs> that feeling of seeing what adults are doing and thinking, I don't kind of understand the appeal. I don't really know quite mm. what's going on. I imagine some kids get it with alcohol as well. You know, again, I was never the kind of kid who kind of wanted to, like, steal their, steal their parents' booze or whatever. But it's that kind of, you want a grown-up experience. And it feels like, while you're experiencing it, you are kind of a bit more grown-up yourself. So compared to the other Bond films I'd seen, I think I probably saw it when I was eight or nine, something like that. And of course, there are so many bits of the film that went completely over my head. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, you know, the collars and cuffs line. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think I I was like, I think I was probably like 25 (laughs) when I finally understood what that line meant. You know, it's it's like oh yes, okay. So I've I've noted down the sorts of things you know that as a kid I was just like went straight over my head. Um, but what Chris was saying about it also being really scary, I found, and it's a bit like why do people love horror films if they're scared by them? You're fascinated by them. All the crematorium scene is absolutely terrifying. When that music comes on the soundtrack, and this soundtrack is immense, but when that music comes on the soundtrack. I do sometimes skip that track just because <laughs> even now it really creeps me yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. It's so, so creepy. I mean, the soundtrack is incredible. It has five of the, and I've noted down which ones these are for when we go through. I'll just flag it up. But Brilliant. five of the best John Barry cues of all. And I could just listen Ooh. to those cues all day. Um, I think the last thing, and I think what you were saying, John, about it knows what it's doing. I think the soundtrack is so good because it's all of one piece. It feels like even when they use like, so, you know, when you're walking through a casino or you're walking through an airport or, you know, you're in a hotel room or whatever, sometimes you get like twinkly twonkly kind of backgroundy musicy typey thing but it's always a melody from the film yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so it almost feels conti- even though even though there are significant scenes without music like the first half of the lift fight there are certain p- segment there is so much of the film is like 
continuous music. Even though the dialogue's fantastic, the music does so much heavy lifting in terms of storytelling. And all of the source music, you know, blends perfectly with the rest of the score as well. Barry always does great, you know, uses the, um, he, he, he usually uses the melody for like restaurant kind of music and all that kind of stuff, but he pushes it to extremes here. And I think it, I think it's really, really effective. And last couple of things, Connery's swagger in this film is just immense. Nothing seems to bother him whatsoever. It is the complete opposite of neurotic Craig. And I don't get me wrong, I love some neuroses, but there's also something about a guy wearing a pink tie, wandering into a penthouse. He has no idea what he's going to find. And he doesn't really, he's, it's, it takes a lot of effort, I think, for Sean, Sean Connery does not get enough credit for showing that nonchalance. It's actually far easier to show someone being worried than to someone actually looking like they own the place as they, as they walk through. So, I mean, the last thing I'll say is, if we haven't already kind of given people enough reason to go back and reevaluate it, um, I was—I recently had this brought to my attention by uh, by uh, David Stevens, who's at the the underscore bold man on Twitter, um, and he's a really really nice guy. Um, but he pointed out that in the very first issue of the James Bond, I've got it in front of me now, the facsimile, the James Bond fan club magazine in 1979 just after Moonraker had been released, they said that Diamonds Are Forever, the staff on that said that Diamonds Are Forever was the best Bond film until that point. So I don't know, you know, Tom, you alluded to people seeing this as silly and taking the fun, taking the mickey out of it and that kind of thing. But that's not necessarily always no, been no. the case. Yeah, because didn't Connery say that it was like he, he felt it was the best script he'd had when he came then that's one of the other reasons why he ended up kind of taking it obviously the paycheck and everything yeah. else but i think that he felt because he'd he'd done all the sorts of serious and then the fantastical side it was just nice for him to do something a bit more relaxed so like we said the dialogue is so prominent isn't it in the film more than maybe any other mm. apart from dying of the day for different reasons but yeah it uh <laughs> it this there, no, there must have been nice scenes to play for him and he knew he was coming back for one. There was no pressure. It's like a final swan song. And he was in Vegas. And he was dating both Bond girls by, by all accounts. It was obviously a great time for him, wasn't it? Off the set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's having a great time. He's having a great time. I will say, Chris. He is. He very you've, uh, you've shown Ernie a few of the Bond films. I take it you haven't dared show him this one because it is quite scary isn't it we've not done a, quite a few of the Conneries because it's either to, uh, to do with uh, to be honest with you, I think he'd just be bored I, I just don't think there's enough he doesn't like say he doesn't have that spectacular kind of you know like with Roger Moore like he started off with Moonraker because it's the most outlandish it's the most silly it's the most you know uh, probably one of the most action packed so it holds people's you know it holds his, his attention you know he did he did enjoy Goldfinger but that's again that's like that's the outlier with for Connery, I find, for, for, of, of his films. Not necessarily good or bad, but I, I do think it's very much kind of... You can understand why kids would love that. But no, Diamonds Are Forever, I think just, again, it's just down to the, the, the tone, particularly those scenes. Like when he's, yeah, like I say, when he's trapped in that casket, it's, that's terrifying. That's like, that's, that's nightmare stuff. That's waking up in a pool of sweat. No sleep for you, that, as even you know. if he watches that. <laughs> <laughs> well... 
Do you guys, I only learnt this a, f a few days ago as well, but do you guys know the origin of where this film actually came from in Cubby's dream? Apparently he uh, had a dream where he, he was really good friends with Howard Hughes, of course. Ah, yes. And he had a dream where he saw Howard Hughes through a window and then when Howard Hughes turned around, it wasn't Howard Hughes. So the idea for the film is so, you know, for anyone who dislikes wow. Blofeld in this film... This is kind of getting dangerously close to if you take fun of the clown yeah. <laughs> territory. But if you, uh, uh, but if if you you know that 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 idea of someone masquerading as a multi-billionaire was the first kind of idea apparently um, that kind of sparked the rest of the movie. Yeah. Mm. So good. So there's something kind of creepy and nightmarish yeah. right yeah. in the the DNA of this film. Yeah, certainly. Like you say, it's very unsettling, and 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 like I mentioned, like it's almost grubby. There's there's a and also and then, like, yeah, talk about that. Even even Connery's appearance has a oh yeah. He's not as he's not as perfectly kind of presented as he is early in other films. You know, he often has his not. We're not going to body shame anyone here. Yeah, but he's he got what, 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 around what, 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 dad pod. His, his eyebrows. But yeah, definitely in love with his body. It's fun. <laughs> I tell you what. Yeah. If I look like that. Yeah. Like, well, according to Terence Young, he had to keep, you know, the iconic scene where he approaches Tatiana in the bed with the gun in uh, yeah. From Russia With Love, the one they always use as the audition scene. Um, uh, apparently, Terence Young, he says on, have you ever heard those like banned commentaries? For those first three oh, movies, yeah. where everyone is really like upfront about everything, <laughs> you can find them online. Uh, I used it for my From Russia with Love review because basically Terence Young tells you who was sleeping with who <laughs> behind the scenes. But one of the other things that he says on the comment on this commentary is, "Yes, and I was always telling Sean, pull in your gut, pull in your gut, you look fat." <laughs> <laughs> and that was in From Russia with Love as well. I don't want to. I don't want to. That was in from Russia with love. So wow. Connery was Body all, shaving. you know, even though he was like incredibly, you know, Mister Bodybuilder and whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, that's what we were going to, you know, in terms of male objectification, there had to be something there for yeah, you know, yeah. everyone. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the main reasons why I find it grubby, and I know we're going off tangent again, but for me, it's the settings. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got Amsterdam, which is a nice place. But actually, the only view shot you really get of uh, Amsterdam is of a yeah. woman being pulled out of the Amstel. So that's incredibly harrowing. That's the only real <laughs> shot you get of Amsterdam. Oh. And then you've got Vegas, and you've got uh, and you've got seventies Vegas. And it really struck me last night that it's just what Blackpool amusements <laughs> still look like now. <laughs> like that is it, it really struck me last night is that when they were going for it's just what they look like now at the seaside so what you have what you have got is you have previously gone from skiing in the swiss alps yeah, yeah. to this mm -hmm. and it's oh, it's such a contrast it, it's something it took a lot for me to get my head around in it that this is this is by far and away the least glamorous bond film up to that point 100%. Because in terms of 
I, the most glamorous it gets is going to Dover and jumping on a hovercraft. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With the bomb theme. Yeah. Which, is, which, don't get me wrong, yeah. I, 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 am, I, I don't even know if hovercraft still run. I want to yeah, do yeah. that. Oh, yeah. That reason. Oh. Yeah. A lot's holding. But you're right. Everything he's. You want to shower after this film? <laughs> you really yeah. feel like you need a shower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether Vegas. I mean, it, like in early seventies, people weren't going abroad as often, or nowhere near as often. And especially Vegas, it would have been quite rare for people to have seen it. So I suppose it was a little bit eyes on the world. It was the whole Sinatra, you know, Dean Martin, the Rat Pack, and of course, I know someone will tell me that uh, Sammy Davis. Yeah, he he has a cameo, doesn't he? Apparently, or it was deleted scene. Deleted scene. Yeah, it was quite one of these. Oh, I'd love to go there. As it went on, I'm sure, 80s, 90s, by then, the novelty had worn off. I dare I compare it to Dubai without getting a slap in the face by somebody, but it's sort of that that kind of faux, <laughs> you know, it's sort of artificial sense, whereas Bond has always been about real locations, real mm-hmm. people. And I think we've touched on it in, in Skyfall. It was like, oh, great, he's going to Macau, he's going to uh, China, but we don't really see any authentic China, do we? We just see, like, inside of the top of a skyscraper he doesn't meet anyone from the country really so those are the things we'd like to have returned to us so even though Vegas is a bit grubby particularly in this film we see proper Vegas we see Shady Tree we see the kind of acts that would be going on at the time and I think it is a realistic portrayal and it's all shot on location as well so it might it might be a bit of a departure from the Swiss Alps. It certainly is less aspirational for me personally, <laughs> but it's it's Bond going to where the mission is, and it fits the plot of the film. It fits the feel of the film perfectly. What I'll say is 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 that my observation of being grubby in the location isn't necessarily no, no, no. criticism because I think it's very fitting with with the film. I, I just think it's an absolute fascinating U turn from what we'd previously had, and maybe some of it was budgetary. Because I think there are parts of it where, obviously, it's renowned of how much Sean Connery was paid, and therefore there was have to be cost cutting else else, and maybe some of that was that. Maybe that's some of the reasons why there isn't grand scale action sequences and all the rest of it. But actually, for what it is, these settings fit perfectly. I th- I think it's definitely without without sounding a bit kind of too kind of pretentious. I think that is absolutely spot on and I think that's why the film works so well because the locations reflect the kind of scuzziness of the world. It's I don't know if any, if anyone's like a fan of old westerns, but uh, apart from James Bond movies, I spend most of my time watching like Hollywood westerns from the 50s and 60s. Love those films. They're, you know, great for interrogating masculinity and that kind of thing. But the thing I love about Westerns is they're always about a landscape. And funnily enough, Diamonds... I've only literally just realised this while talking, but Diamonds are Forever is set in that sort of landscape. Yeah, yeah. It's that kind of barren, kind of like you strip everything away, you know, that's that sort of sandy sort of location. And ends in kind of a... you know, And, and you often in Westerns, the character's psychology reflects that kind of landscape. And I think we've definitely got that in this because sometimes, and even Ian Fleming says this in several of the novels, Bond feels like an outsider in the places he's in. Even though he's, you know, he's super confident in some ways, inside he's he's kind of terrified. 
he realises he doesn't belong to a lot of those places. Mm. And I think in Diamonds Are Forever, where everything is kind of, you know, on that kind of scuzzy, murky sort of level, I feel it might seem like a departure, but for me, it's kind of like that's sort of who Bond is. Mm. Brilliant. So I think we're up to that bit again where we're going to do the quiz. Dave, I'm sure you've heard this before, but as per every single time, we always have a buzzer. Five questions. First person who I hear from the buzzer, partially that, it's the first one to speak. It's also the one who has the best (laughs) internet connection because that will obviously pick up first. So Tom, (laughs) sorry, mate. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But the buzzer today, I'm quite sure we can all do it. It's quite obvious what it's got to be. If you want to answer this question correctly, I want to hear your best accent. Baha! That's all. So why don't you just have a practice of that just to make sure that you're all right with that? Baha! 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 Oh, I love it. To be honest, there's actually so many I could have done with this yeah, one. Yeah. I mean, like, that character alone has so many quotable lines. So five questions. Oh, oh it's brilliant. Tell Mark Jackson! Oh, it's so good. It really is so good. Okay. Right, let's go. Question one. What was the year of the original vintage wine that formed the basis of the sherry that Bond received from Sir Donald? Baha. Just about, David. 1851? Oh. Is correct. Is correct. 1851. That's one of my favourite lines. What a crisp guy he is. He's brilliant. (laughs) Uh, Question two. What is the name of the cassette that Blofeld used to control the satellite? I think I've got the best internet as well. Um, But uh, it's World's Greatest Marches. Yeah. World's Greatest Marches is correct. Yeah, Yeah, it's correct. So if you get this one, David, you've won the quiz, basically. (laughs) So well done. Uh, (laughs) um, Question three What button does Blofeld ask Bond to press when going in the lift? Oh, no. I do know this one as well, but I, uh-huh. I'm trying to be polite. But <laughs> go on, Dave. L. Oh yeah. L is correct. Are we going to get the first yeah. whitewash of the series? That's what we need to ask. Question four: What city does Blofeld decide to destroy? Baja. I'm just going to guess. <laughs> so, um, Washington DC. Oh. Correct, Chris. Correct. Oh. Yes. And the final one: What is the what is the name of the Bible teaching diamond Baha. smuggler who is drowned in the Amstel? Bah! Oh my word! Tom. Go the on, Tom. character from Bean, the Ultimate Disaster Movie, Mrs. Whistler. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassing. I it's correct. That. It's correct. Yeah. So you both got a consolation prize each. I think but... you type that in the notes. Tom. Exactly. I do. So have I think that's that that probably why you remember it so much. <laughs> right, there you oh, go, well done, David. Double O David, as some might call him. Well done. I have seen this film a lot. We've seen it an awful lot, but mm. not for about 10 years, maybe. I don't know. So, George Lazenby was. Uh, Originally offered a contract for seven Bond films. I mean, much. Yeah, so as, as good as he is, like, just calm down. Do all right. Three, 
and then you know then see how we get it on but anyway that that would have been fascinating it's like when David yeah, yeah. was given a seven trust year in, contract you trust in your manager yeah, <laughs> there was some stat wasn't there like in Tomorrow Never Dies that would have been George Lazenby would have been the same age that Roger Moore was in A View to a Kill it's some, is it? Is it tomorrow of eyes? And that yeah, might have been his seventh as well. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. So, yeah. So he declined. You got to remember though, the, there were seven movies made. Yeah. In, yeah. What nine years? Oh, that's oh. amazing. Can you imagine that now? I mean, it, it couldn't work, could it? No. Yeah, they weren't dicking about. Like I'll that, accept yeah. two or three years. I will accept that. But six years and counting is uh, is is too much. <laughs> and counting. That could have been buzzer. See, that could have been a buzzer. And counting. Top ten of buzzer in this. A very quotable film. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So his agent George. I mean, hopefully one day we'll speak to him. But his agent gave him the advice to to leave after On a Majesty's. So producers contemplated replacing with a guy called John Gavin, but actors Clint Eastwood, Adam West, we'll hear more about him later, um, you'll see why, and uh, Burt Reynolds had also been considered, I mean quite, we like to say the word David, I'm sure you've heard us say it, babyish many times, you know, three big name actors from, you know, Western, Batman, and, well, another, I suppose another Western with Burt Reynolds, but they all stated that Bond should not be played by an American. That's another episode, isn't it? In it, Waiting in the Wings. <laughs> Weirdly, do you know who rejected an offer to be Bond? He told Cubby Broccoli it was because he was in terrible shape. This is somebody I would never associate with Bond. Very good actor. Michael yeah. Gambon. He said that he had um, man yeah, well. uh, He uh, Cubby, Cubby turned around and said... Cubby said that he could use ice packs so he could kind of... Keep his man boobs small. What? I'm sure I read. I don't know where I read that, but I'm sure. Yeah, That's no, brilliant. I'm sure. I'm sure I, re- I hopefully I haven't dreamt that. Um, but one I, of those commentaries. Michael Gambon's yeah. man boobs. That dream. That one again. Okay, they they did offer it. George Lazenby. So it wasn't like, oh heck, that wasn't a hit. We need Sean back. But the apparently the chief of United Artists at the time, a guy called David Picker, made it clear that Connery had to be enticed back. So money was no object. And this, like we were saying, is where a huge chunk of the budget went to, and he got $1.25 million. No, pounds, pounds, sorry. So at the time, that was by far the biggest salary any actor had ever received for anything. He was also crucially offered, I think we mentioned this in our Sean Connery tributes uh, just after he died, United Artists offered him two back-to-back films of his choice as well. So it was, you know, an artistic thing for him. It wasn't just money. And both sides agreed to the deal, Connery established this thing called the Scottish International Education Trust, so again, helping those less uh, fortunate than he, where Scottish artists could apply for funding without having to leave the country to pursue the career. So, you know, people had a go at him, oh, he never paid taxes and stuff, but part of the problem was he had to do that to further his career. And I suppose he was almost saying, well, if I get you off on the ground from Scotland, that would be a big help for these, for these young actors. The first deal in his uh, two-picture deal, Chris, one of your favourites, was The Offence, the Sydney Lumet. Yeah. Wow. Right. Which again, I've, I've got it. <laughs> I've got it recorded, but it does sound like it. It, it could cause a lot of offence uh, in terms of the plot. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty harrowing. Uh, <laughs> it was on BBC too, quite recently. No, I've yeah, never yeah, seen that yeah. one. No. The second one was some adaptation of Macbeth with with only Scottish actors and obviously Connery taking the title role, but that was abandoned because there was the Roman Polanski version already in the production. There's another rabbit hole we could 
<laughs> was he going to direct that? Uh, yes, uh, possibly. Yes, I think, or at least produce. But yeah, it's the Mel Gibson's the Hamlet one, isn't it? The Fr- Franco Zeffirelli, another gay director. I've never actually watched that. No, no. I love. Yeah, yeah. point actually. Yeah, yeah. We there's so many things we keep saying. Oh yes, need to watch that. Need to watch that. You know, we've had all of lockdown, and we've just we've just watched more James Bond, haven't we? Basically. <laughs> Um, so, uh, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I'm yeah, worried for sight. Officer, yeah. United artists were gun ho to get Sean back, but Harry and Cubby felt they really didn't want to beg a reluctant actor to act. I had a brilliant sketch artist who was working for me, Tom Wright, and if you look at his storyboards. I mean, it's always shown in them. I had to take a week to make the decision myself what, whether I would do it again. And lo and behold, Sean said, yes, he would come back. They had given him, I guess, a deal he couldn't refuse. Desperate times call for desperate measures. He got the unheard of sum of, I think, a million two hundred thousand dollars for the film, which in 1970 was just extraordinary. Sean gave all that money away and it was a million and a quarter dollars. He contributed his fee to Scottish Educational Trust Fund. I started three years ago a trust in Scotland, Scottish International Education Trust. Young Scottish artists, writers, painters, who could get the money if they stayed in Scotland. With this, I could launch the trust with so much money that there could never be an excuse for it not succeeding. He also got the right to make two films. We made a two-picture deal with Sean with also development money for to prepare them during this period which i'm doing now and once back i must say he was the real pro everything went wonderfully well cubby's wife dana broccoli ken adam tom mankovich david picker the united artist president stanley sopel associate producer and of course sean himself all talking about the great man returning to the role even while On a Majesty's was in post-production, the regular writer, all the way up until Licence to Kill, Richard Maybaum, he'd wrote the initial treatments and a script. John, yeah, it was originally intended as a revenge-themed sequel to Diamonds with Irma Bunce and Draco returning. I mean, absolutely fascinating alternate Bond universe there. Mm. Bond morning Tracy, while we all have, we have all the time in the world, will be played in the background. That's sort of almost like a, a Daniel Craig era following on, isn't it? Sort of the way Quantum did. <clears throat> yeah, so when uh, George Lazenby did depart from the role, <laughs> it was uh, prior to the film's release, a complete rewrite was done. Maybaum's script wasn't particularly impressive to Saltzman and Broccoli, so the original plot, you may have read this, guys, it had Goldfinger's twin seeking revenge for the death of his brother, so a family connection, but not to do with Tracy. So. Isn't it interesting how they tr- were thinking then to kind of continue the stories on? And nowadays, I'm not sure it's necessarily been a brilliant yes. idea. Yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, more recently, but I, they decided no. Actually, we're just going to kind of get the whole trauma of Tracy's death out of the way and not actually yeah. mention it explicitly. So it's yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? It is tough. It is tough. I'll start with my with how I get through this film. I get through this film with the interpretation that this is set before oh, wow. on the Majesty's Secret Service. I thought you were going to say ten years and after. that it's a <coughs> and that it's a direct sequel. <coughs> Excuse me, no, that it's a direct sequel to You Only Live Twice, and that is the only way I can get through it. And and the way I can do that is because it opens in Japan. Yeah, with that it does, one yeah. shot. 
going through the Japanese uh, door. Springs, yeah. Yeah. I just take it is that that is him going into Japan, asking someone where Blofeld is, and we just carry on the story there. And that is the only way, the only way I can interpret it without getting wound up about so, the revenge aspect. Does that mean that? After Tracy Bond dies, we open with <laughs> yeah. him and let it die. So Bond channeled, all, ch- Bond channeled all of his grief into buying um, a new kitchen. So I actually go, and now now I am going all over rabbit hole and half. I mean, we could be here for an hour and a half. I go that the sequel to Honor Majesty's Secret Service is for your eyes only. Even though he does mention married ones, going yes, thank you. in uh, Spy Love Me, doesn't he? Oh yeah, well this, oh, is, yeah. this is in there's, there's non-linear no non-linear series by now. <laughs> Spy Love Me has to go off, but but I, I just think of it like you've got the you've got the grave, you've got the blow felt, and then you've got the story in for your eyes only of about teaching Melina not to have not to hold on to revenge and not to seek revenge. And I think that follows nicely in that kind of sense. It's my own interpretation. It's probably a load of nonsense, but it's like, it's the only way I can get through it because otherwise I find the complete contrast of the two films really grating. I think I have a higher (laughs) tolerance of extreme contrast, uh, to put it mildly, but the... um, I don't know if you saw it. I've retweeted it a couple of times, but someone who's written three articles for the for my website, um, Sam Rogers, he has kind of a similar sort of thing to you. He actually redid the opening titles to Diamonds Are Forever, and he put the cast and the crew from Honor Majesty's Secret Service on it just to kind of see what that would look like mm. to kind of create that impression of the film. It was just... It's just... Yeah, I mean, it's... I, I think it's frustrating we didn't get to see the follow-up. I think it would have been disastrous to have put the death of Tracy at the start yeah, of the next yeah. film, mm. as they were quite eager to, I understand. But, but yeah, I'm like, it would have set, it would have done what, what, we're now, what we're now seeing, wouldn't it, you know, back then? And I don't know if I, I honestly don't know if I would have liked to have kind of, well, how would our viewing experiences have been different had we kind of picked up films at random mm. and then not seen that continuity? I don't know. I don't know. Was it supposed to be that the, the opening was uh, was going to be the, like the last five minutes of On Her Majesty's, wasn't it? So you're going to see the wedding yeah, and then it just take off from there, which would be quite, I'd say it has a kind of whiff of, Quantum of Solace about it, but um, yeah, it is. It's and that's one of the great things about the Bond films. Like, what if yeah. an alternate universe where like Michael Gambon was Bond? <laughs> you know, wow. <laughs> I like to think that. Oh, <laughs> With yeah, ice, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With ice <right? laughs> the wedding night. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I like your idea, John, but you still have the silliness of all right, keep your hair on, and that would seem a bit throwaway, wouldn't it? After. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a total shit. <laughs> oh it, well, yeah, you know, no, I know. I didn't want to encourage on, you then. For your eyes only, it's a flawed argument anyway. But <laughs> I think you've hit the nail on the head there, though, Tom. Because for me, Bond has always been a tonal yeah, mix. Yeah. Don't get me wrong; there are there are things which I find really personally irksome, like the slide whistling man with the golden gun, all that kind of. You know, I find a lot of those things really, yeah. I think, yeah, just get that out of our systems. 
there are a lot of things like that, but every Bond film, especially you, at your beloved Octopussy, um, has such a weird mix of yeah, different yeah. tones. And for me, I think Diamonds Are Forever, yes, it does kind of jump the moon buggy. I love buggy. this moon buggy, I'm um, fascinated. <laughs> about halfway through. Don't spoil it, don't spoil it. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's it's like a real kind of mixed bag of weird tones, yeah. this film. Uh, you wouldn't get it now. <laughs> do, do you think and I actually, love it. That's the reason I love it. Do you think there's actually, like like John was saying before, there's, there's more of a, much more aware of the tone, that actually there's more kind of control yeah. over that. It's, it's very deliberate. Therefore, tonally, it's less from one extreme to the other. It's, it's you know, it peaks and troughs, but it's mm. more controlled than, like, for, for example, you know, that people, you know, complain about octopus you like being you know, deadly serious, but then very silly at the same time. So you, there's a real kind of shift from one oh, end to the other. Yeah, um, but with Downs of Forever, it's relatively... I'm deadly serious! I'm not going to talk about not, the clown. Definitely not the clown. <laughs> the thing that made it, of course, the change is Tom Mankiewicz. Mank? No, it's his son, isn't it? Is that right? His uncle. Are you yeah, talking about yeah. the David Fincher film? Have you seen? I haven't got around to. Yeah, I'm not quite sure they're related, yeah. No, I haven't actually. No, I uh, again yeah. it's on the top. Uh, number three hundred twenty-nine, with with Rob's uh, selection. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like you said, though, David, we had the the plot was changed from the Goldfinger silliness to the Broccoli Dream, but that that obviously left an impression, didn't it? Because that would form the character of uh, Willard White. Willard White. One morning he woke and he said, "I've had the most fabulous dream. It was about how it used." He said, I thought I was outside the penthouse window and he had his back to me and I was knocking on the window and I was saying, Sam, that was the nickname that his close friends called him, Sam. And when he turned around, it wasn't Howard Hughes at all. It was a total stranger. He said, and that's what I've been looking for. This fellow who's kept captive in this penthouse and everything below is still going on as though he exists. So Mank says he was hired because Broccoli wanted an American writer to work on the script because so much of it was set in Vegas. And and this was his quote, the Brits write really lousy American gangsters. Don't really know which films he was referring to then, but... But it also had to be someone who understood the British idiom since it had British characters. And there's a musical, Georgie, which was written by Mank, which um, I'll, I'll just call him that for sake of the joke, and it's, it's easier. He, he'd seen that anyway, and recommended him. <laughs> and he only hired him at first on a two-week trial, and then they just kept him on because they were so impressed. And then, of course, he was working on most of the Bond films in some capacity throughout up to the 80s, wasn't he? So it was obviously very successful. I got a call from my agent saying, how would you like to write a James Bond movie? I thought he was joking. I mean, this monstrous joke. Cubby Broccoli was saying, I need a writer to rewrite this script. He's, I want him to be young. I'd like him to be American, but he has to have a commander of the British idiom. He's a perfect writer for this because he writes larger than life and he writes with, with attitude. Well, I was like a kid in a candy store. I couldn't believe that I was there as the writer of a Bond movie. I never met Sean until we were in Las Vegas about two weeks before, and I had the most wonderful meeting with him. He loved the script. 
I think is probably the best one we've had, certainly uh, construction-wise for a beginning, a middle and an end of a story. It's very good. It's a very good script. Most of the notes he had were about other characters' dialogue or other characters' bits of business. It was the least self-centered script meeting I'd ever had with an actor, much less a star. Tom Bankovich later estimated, he reckoned, that the novel provided about 45 minutes of the final runtime, which is quite a lot, isn't it? Especially, I mean, now it would be a massive chunk, wouldn't it? But that's that's a fair... Oh, maybe you disagree with that, but it's not... Yeah, uh, I... Yeah. No, cause in the, mm. There's a lot more of the gangsters, isn't there, in, in the novel, and there's mo much more of that kind of... It's been a while since, but oh, David, you'll know. I reread it the race just before Christmas. You didn't reread it in preparation for this review? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, 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 sorry. Uh, the other things. Yeah. It's a very weird one, Diamonds of Forever, because it's not the only Bond film where you... I suppose one of the things it does take into the film is that sense of, why is Bond involved in diamond smuggling plot? Mm. Because, you know... Um, I, I I I did also pick up the Diamond Smugglers, the the Ian Fleming book that was kind of you know he wrote after Diamonds Are Forever. A lot of that seems to have informed the film, and I think he knew about quite a lot of it already when he wrote the Diamonds Are Forever. So the smuggling stuff is sort of there, but it is more like a kind of hard boiled noir kind of novel except it's not especially hard-boiled hard boiled. it's a weird one diamonds are forever the book if you think the film's straight <laughs> read the book it's just honestly it is it is completely bizarre i mean actually most of it is essentially bond and felix's big gay holiday <laughs> away on you know going to like a you know um going to this resort together there is no reason for bond and felix to spend all that time together that's all i'm saying at some point they even say to themselves why are we hanging around with each other well i don't know bond and felix it's just it's just a weird weird novel and it's almost like Ian Fleming had these kind of scenarios. He just wanted to... You can really see the cracks with Diamonds Are Forever. I love all the Bond books, but Diamonds Are Forever, you can especially see the where he was trying to get it to work and it didn't quite work as well as it should have done sort of yeah, thing. Well, and I, I, I highly doubt 45 minutes of the well, film. I think it's more like, you know, 20 minutes or something. Like, like you say, that. it's got the diamonds smuggling operation in it. It goes... Is it from Sierra Leone this time? And we'll get on to the... Diamonds of Sierra Leone, Kanye West song, obviously later. Uh, all the way to Vegas in the novel. Yeah. Bond falls in love with Tiffany Case. I'm not sure he falls in love with in this film, but we'll, we'll discuss that as well. No. Like you, you've mentioned this, the Diamond Smugglers book, which is obviously it really hit something, struck a chord with him. He must have been really taken with that operation and that regime. It is quite. I don't know. It, it seems quite. Well, he, he wrote it as a series of articles originally, and I think in the yeah, Times, so I might have got that yeah. wrong, and then he kind of put it together as a book to sort of thing yeah the way dickens used to uh, <laughs> another rabbit hole so that's Dick another hour bond and dickens, bond and dickens. <laughs> orphans more sir more sir yeah roger go. moore sorry i'm i'm, <laughs> are, you, I'm, I'm are you all right tom i'm very ill <laughs> you're free associating my brain crazy is, here yeah. we've got to all of a twist yeah. land I'd, I'd read in some blurbs somewhere that the novel was said to deal with issues of international travel, marriage, and the transitory nature of life. Good grief. Which book are we on about now? <laughs> Not really like the, the finished film. No. Obviously they kept Shady Tree, Winston Kidd, 
but we lose we, we lost the mobsters who were called Jack and Serafimo Spang, I believe. They're they're not obviously in the, the, the main villains from the flowing novel aren't there. In terms of where the film went, we then we then shot primarily in the US, which was obviously a bit of a change. Goldfinger, of course, had scenes in, in America. Uh, was the most prominent one until then. Yes, yeah, so they, they went to Los Angeles International Airport, Universal City Studios, so they did some studio work there, and they went to eight different hotels in Las Vegas. So, goodness me, it's quite an operation. Big night out, probably, that was. Um, <laughs> they took it to Pinewood and used some of the scenes were shot in Dover and Southampton, of course, the ferry, the hovercraft scene. And then they went to Amsterdam and also Frankfurt Airport, so it's quite a, another international affair. Really Join us for part two of our really in-depth review of Diamonds Are Forever, and we talk about the production of the film, the pre-title sequence, the amazing title song, and the wonderful MC. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.